It's from Genesis. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his head, his heel. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Justin. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Um, really, is a, I, I have known of your church for a while. I have not actually made it out here, so I am glad that I had the opportunity to do so. Uh, as stated, yeah, I'm from uh, uh, Manhattan. I work at uh, currently at Redeemer Presbyterian East Side on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. But um, as noted, planting uh, Redeemer East Harlem come the end of the year by October. Uh, we hope to be launching there. My wife. Uh, two daughters. We both li- we all live in East Harlem um, and really love that community and looking forward to seeing what God does up there. Uh, and again, grateful to be with you. Uh, let me open us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you speak uh, through your word. And so we do ask that you would do that today, uh, that you'd make clear the things you desire us to hear, uh, and that none of us would leave here the same. Uh, we'd leave here challenged, uh, convicted, encouraged, uh, whatever it is that you desire to do uh, through this time. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, in Genesis 3, uh, what we see in this passage is a question a very central question, and it's actually the very first time that God asks a question all throughout Scripture. Um, over and over again throughout the Bible, you see God asking questions. Uh, and, of course, God being God, he does not answer questions in order to get information, but rather when God asks a question, uh, it's not for his benefit, but it's for the benefit of those whom he's asking the question to. And so today we see this very first question that God asks, and that question is, where are you? Now again, this is not a question that God, uh, God is not um, looking for information, but rather he's asking the question of Adam and Eve for a very particular reason. Now what I find to be ironic about this question, though, is that this question is usually a question, not that God asks man, but usually that man asks God. I mean, I think most of us at various points in our lives, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, uh, many times we've asked God this question. 
You know, in the midst of really difficult circumstances, painful times, we just heard about some of those difficult and painful times uh, that we're even in now as a nation. At those times, how often do we find ourselves asking the question, God, where are you? And yet here, it's not man asking God, but rather it's God asking the question. And this becomes extremely important because what we're going to see here in this passage is that this question represents a pursuit that God has for man. And that this pursuit that God has toward man is a pursuit that we will see fulfills some of our deepest longings. The desires that we have deepest within us, this question speaks to. And so, to understand how that's the case, uh, I want to take a look at uh, several things here. Particularly, I want to take a look at the timeline of events uh, that we have in, in our passage. Uh, so what I want to do, I want to see what happens before the question is asked. Then I want to take a look at the question itself. And then we'll take a look at what happens after the question. Okay, so first, before the question. Uh, so while this is not in our passage, just to give some context of what's happening here in Genesis 3. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen that God has created the universe. And as part of that creation, he's created a centerpiece, which is mankind. So he's created Adam and Eve in his image. However, here in Genesis 3, what we have is Eve has been deceived by the serpent, who we would find out later uh, is Satan. Uh, She eats from that tree that God told Adam not to eat from. She disobeys God, and subsequently Adam would follow suit And at this point, sin enters the world, and this is what we call the fall of man. Now, this is where we pick up our story in Genesis 3, because what's happened now is that as a result of their disobedience, Adam and Eve, it says, for the first time, realized they were naked. Now, how does one just realize their nakedness? How does that happen? I mean, presumably, they've always been naked. Uh, Genesis 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, tells us that they were naked and that they felt no shame, right? So this lack of clothing should not have been a surprise to them. You know, it's not like that maybe reoccurring dream that you've had where you're standing up in front of a group of people that you don't know, and then you look down and you realize you're naked. That's not what's happening here. But we're told what is happening here. Verse 7 explains it by saying this. It says that their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Their eyes were opened. Now, we know what that means, right? We actually use that kind of terminology even today, that when our eyes have been opened to something, we aren't saying that our eyes were physically opened, but rather we've been awakened to something. We realize something that we did not realize previously. And so what we have here is Adam and Eve realizing that they're naked. Now, This word naked, while certainly meaning a physical nakedness, um, there's also this sense in the original word where um, it is to be laid bare or to be fully known, that the word has more to do with being exposed or being made vulnerable. Again, it has little to do with a physical change. And this is important uh, because the tension that is created, what we're supposed to see in this narrative is that Adam and Eve, had no problem being fully and completely vulnerable until their disobedience. 
And now this vulnerability is horrifying because now there's something that they want not seen. They have become ashamed when all is laid bare. But why were they ashamed? And I even ask, why at times do we tend to feel shame? What is shame exactly? Uh, Well, Kirk Thompson, who's a psychiatrist, he's done quite a bit of research in the area of shame. And in his book, The Soul of Shame, he defines shame this way. He defines shame as the feeling of not being enough. And he goes on to say that in a physiological way, shame is our system's way of warning of possible impending abandonment and that we tend to respond to it by relationally moving away from others rather than toward them. This becomes a very key definition to shame, that shame is not feeling enough and it is a fear of abandonment and so as a result we move away from relationships. Now we know this intuitively to be true, that being abandoned and rejected is one of our greatest fears in life. I mean, one of our greatest fears is for people to fully know who we are, to see us down to the very bottom, and as a result of seeing who we truly are, reject us. This is one of the things that so often drives us. But what's interesting is that the flip side of that is that one of our greatest desires is to be fully known, fully seen, and then accepted and loved as a result. I mean, one of the greatest feelings in the world is when you have opened up to someone. You've told them your greatest dreams or you shared with them your deepest, darkest secrets. And as a result of you sharing that with them, their response to you is, I love you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I mean, that's an exhilarating feeling when you can feel loved and accepted as a result of who you fully are. It's not within our nature. We haven't been built to hide away. We want to be known. We want to be accepted. Uh, But of course, we know that's not usually how this works. Our experiences have taught us that when we are vulnerable and honest about who we are, that we are not loved, we are not accepted, that we tend to be rejected. And so as a result, we hide away. Now, if shame then uh, is a result of not feeling good enough and fearing rejection, how were Adam and Eve, to get back to Adam and Eve here, how were they not good enough? Well, for them, they had been created for a purpose, and they had not lived up to that purpose. Now, what is their purpose? I think one of the easiest ways to understand what their purpose is is something that the Bible teaches, which the Westminster Shorter Catechism famously articulates. Uh, If there's any good Presbyterians in the room, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know? To enjoy God, or to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the great purpose of man. This was Adam and Eve's great purpose. And yet, what we see here is that through their disobedience, they did not glorify God because they they believed that enjoyment was found elsewhere. And in looking elsewhere, they they developed an acute awareness of not being good enough. And this made them hide. Now, 
let me stop there for a second, because I do realize that there might be some who would say, isn't this kind of the problem with religion right here? That people believe that there is this purpose, and if they don't live up to that purpose, then they feel like they aren't good enough because they can't appease this God. You know, isn't it that we just need to discover our own purpose and not worry about what other people say because I am enough? I can find it within myself to be enough. Well, I would argue that no, we can't actually do that. We, we don't actually do that. That we won't actually feel good enough by simply looking within ourselves, believing that we are enough, that we can't actually determine our own purpose. And the reason why I say that is because purpose, which gives our life a sense of meaning, is always, they're always, that sense of meaning is always based on standards that we are trying to live up to. And those standards are almost always externally established norms. They are not just internal preferences. Uh, to give you an example of this, uh, Psychology Today, a couple of years ago, uh, was describing various causes of shame. Uh, and they noted that the main causes are standards. And this is what they said. It said, all of us have beliefs about what is an acceptable standard concerning actions, thoughts, and feelings. For example, at funerals, we know that laughing, expressing joy, or feeling glad that the person is dead is not the norm. In most neighborhoods, dog owners carry plastic bags when they walk their dogs. The violation of these standards produce shame. Now, why is that? It's because standards can only be standards based on external norms that have been established. And we have external norms. Every one of us has external norms that we are trying to conform to. Only crazy people have no concern for any standard or a violation of standards. I mean, there are people we don't want following their hearts or following their dreams. And the point of all of this is that some external norm or desire will determine your standard. This is true when it comes to funeral etiquette and walking your dog. It's especially true when we're talking about personal morality, value, purpose. I mean, just know that if God is not determining your standards, then something else is. And when we can't live up to that purpose, when we don't meet a certain standard, we then will feel shame and fear rejection. And so for Adam and Eve, their purpose and standard was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They did not live up to that purpose, and now they feel shame. They fear rejection, and so they hide away because there was something they wanted to hide, or they wanted hidden when all was laid bare. And so to affirm the previous definition of shame, they felt a possible impending abandonment because they didn't feel good enough. Now let's take a look at the question itself. Because there's two ways that we can understand this actual question now, given all that we've said. I mean, this question again seems kind of silly for God to be asking, where are you? I mean, if God is God, does, they, do they, does he really not know where they are? Uh, but maybe think about it this way. So I have two daughters uh, both of whom, over the years, have played this game with me. But my youngest 
ah, she's just getting too old now, or she's just coming out of this stage, and I miss it. But she uh, would love to play this game, or when she'd hear me come in the door, she'd dart off and hide somewhere. Now, let's be real. In a Manhattan apartment, there are not that many places to hide. Uh, and so usually what would happen is that as soon as I'd walk in, I could tell exactly where she was. And I could usually tell because I'd see like a backlit lump behind a curtain, or I'd see little feet sticking out from behind a couch. But you know what I would do, even though I knew where she was? You know what I would do? I would ask this question. I would say, A.V., where are you? Where are you, A.V.? Now, why do I ask that question? I don't ask that question because I don't know where she is. I ask it as a means of drawing her out of her hiding place so that she'll come and see me. I mean, God knows what happened. God knows exactly where Adam is. But commentators, when they're uh, looking at this question, they note that there's a softness to the question. Again, think about it in terms of parenting. Why do parents ask different types of rhetorical questions? Well, you do it as a way of drawing the child out. It's a way of God, it's God saying, listen, Adam, I see you. You can't hide from me. So come out and talk to me about what you've done. And so on the one hand, this question represents God's affectionate concern for Adam. But on the other hand, though God is wanting to draw them out of their hiding place and to deal with their consequences, they do need to actually deal with the consequences. And there are some significant consequences that have come from this story, from this action. I mean, the entire biblical narrative is unpacking what's happened as a result of this moment. I mean, the Bible teaches that all the problems that man encounters now, sin, sickness, death, that the perfect image of God in man has been obscured. All of this, innocence has disappeared as a result of them failing to live up to the standard to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right here is where it all started. So with that in mind, then, well, now what? You know, they failed. There are some serious consequences that we are still dealing with even today. They have been left with this deep shame. God is attempting to draw them out of their hiding place, but now what? What is supposed to happen? What can be done? And I'd even say, well, what about the shame that you and I face and feel even now? You know, we all have this shame. We all feel like we are not good enough. We all fear rejection and abandonment. So what now? Well, we see the hope that we can hold on to in the midst of our shame by what happens now after the question. Because there are two passages that we just read that are absolutely astounding of what is to come. Because in the midst of their shame, God gives them a promise that one day the consequences of their disobedience will be undone and one day there will be full restoration of what was lost in the garden. Let's look at those two passages very quickly. First, look at verse 15. Verse 15 is called the Proto-Evangelium. 
the first gospel. It's, it's where God is speaking to the serpent, and this is what he says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, who is this he that will destroy the evil one? Who is the offspring of Eve who will undo all that has been done? Well, Romans 5 tells us that though sin was brought into the world through one man, Adam, redemption now comes through one man, to Jesus. See, Jesus is the he. He is the offspring here in verse 15. But we don't even just see that it's Jesus who would be the the redeemer, but we will also see how he goes about redeeming. And we see that now in verse 21. Verse 21 gives us a glimpse. See, at the end of this mini saga in Genesis 3, it says that God covers them with skins and clothes them. Now, up until this point, Adam and Eve have desperately tried to cover themselves. They have tried with fig leaves. They have tried by hiding. But none of it was sufficient to actually cover their shame. And we know this to be true. We know this to be true that when we have offended or sinned against someone, our shame does not disintegrate by us hiding away. But rather, it disintegrates. Our shame disintegrates when the person that we have offended embraces us. I mean, think about it. Have you ever hurt someone and you just feel awful about it? But then the person that you've hurt now comes to you and hugs you and says, I love you. If you have ever been in that situation, you know that it melts you, that the person that you offended has now come to you and embraced you. In other words, real healing comes when the one who, offend, who was offended covers you. Now, God, the one who was offended, embraces them by taking a creature, an animal, and covers them. But what's amazing is that verse 15 alludes to the fact that verse 21 is only a foreshadowing of a future day when it will not be a creature that dies to cover shame, but rather it will be the creator, the son of God, the offspring of Eve, who would die to come and cover shame. I mean, Jesus, the sinless one, the, one, the only one who has lived up to the standard, the chief end of man, the one who had no reason to hide or feel shame. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he knew no sin, but he becomes sin. That on the cross, he was stripped naked, fully exposed, completely vulnerable. In other words, our sin and our shame are placed on Jesus. He bears the weight and the consequences of our sin in his death. But then he goes to the grave, he rises again, and in his resurrection, he proves that sin and death have lost their power. In his resurrection, Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. But the second half of 2 Corinthians 5.21 also goes on to say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. And I want you to hear me. That not only does Jesus take our sin, but he also gives us his perfection. This is what we call the great exchange. Our sin for his perfection so that God no longer sees us in our sin, but by faith in Jesus, he now sees us as perfect. We no longer have to be clothed with fig leaves and animal skins. We can now be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And this is the means by which God restores all that was lost. And now as a result, we can be open with our areas of shame. We can be vulnerable with our failures and our insecurities. And to go back to the definition that we heard earlier, Kirk Thompson's definition of shame, the feeling of not being enough or this fear of abandonment in Jesus. You don't have to be enough. He is enough. In Jesus, you don't have to fear abandonment. Why? Because as Bruce Walke, a theologian who, when reflecting on this passage, said this, he said, the gardener has not abandoned his garden. The proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love. God is not abandoning you. Rather, he is in pursuit of you right now. He's drawing you out of your hiding place. Now, some of us here, we don't feel good enough. We've made some mistakes. We are afraid that people won't love us if they really knew us. But I want you to know, I want you to hear that we can be confident that in Christ, God sees us and loves us. He knows us and accepts us because of Jesus. And uh, my prayer would that be, be for you as a church community, that together you would reflect that kind of love with one another. That it be a church community where you can be honest and open and vulnerable with one another. And as a result of that vulnerability, there's also acceptance and compassion and grace and love for that type of church reflects the goodness and grace and character of the one who has established this church, Christ himself. So I ask you the question, where are you? Are you hiding? Are you trapped in shame? Because if you are, God is calling you out, drawing you out, extending you a promise, a promise that if you will trust in Jesus, he will take your shame, give you his perfection. And I would ask you to trust that promise today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us down to the very bottom. You know the very places of our soul that sometimes we don't even want to recognize, let alone show to other people. And yet while we were sinners, while we were still trapped in the consequences of our sin, you died for us. You sent your son to take upon himself our sin, our shame. But you also, as a result of his perfect life, have given us his perfection so that now we can come before you with confidence knowing that you love and accept us. I pray that on an individual level we would experience what that is like, the freedom that comes in knowing 
that we are yours as a result of Jesus, that you are not abandoning us, but you are calling us. But I also pray that corporately, as a, as a body, as a church, that this church would reflect that grace, would reflect that love and compassion. Make this an honest, vulnerable community that honors you in this way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.